Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Long story short, I lost a little over 40 pounds of muscle. I have a muscle-wasting disease, muscle-weakening disease. Again, it's called a bunch of different things, called polymyositis. Um, I basically went from, you know, I woke up, we won the state championship. I looked at my wife, my now wife, who's my fiance at the time. And I said, I don't know that my life could get any better than this. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, I am on the streets of Oak Park, Illinois. Just got done recording an interview with Mike Powell. And rather than get back to the studio, I said, I got to get this out. I got to get this interview out to the wrestling people, so here we are. My guest today is Mike Powell. Mike Powell is the executive director for Beat the Street Chicago, and before that was one of the most legendary uh, Illinois high school wrestling coaches of all time. He coached at Powerhouse Oak Park and River Forest. They were national champs a couple times, national number one back in 2014. And Mike Powell has a crazy story because at the peak of his coaching career, he was diagnosed with a uncurable you know, muscle weakening disease and we talk about that here but it really impacted his life and does to this day but it's an incredible story and like I said I just wanted to get it out to you right away it's state championship week here in Illinois so who better to start our week than Mike Powell. Fan of the week goes to Gail Rush. Gail is a wrestling super mom and is a good family friend. Her along with my mother Lori Warner Traveled the Illinois circuits for many years and put up with a lot to take Clayton and a lot of wrestlers around a tournament. So, Gail, thanks for listening to this podcast. Hope you're having a great day. Last but not least, folks, if you want to support the show, please visit our online store. That's store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, all of it goes to support the podcast. Again, that's store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. If you want to follow us outside of this podcast, go to our website, WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. Also on Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as Instagram, WrestlingChangeMyLife. That's it, folks. Let's have a great episode, and please give it up for Mike Powell. We are here with Mike Powell, Executive Director, Beat the Streets, former uh, wrestling high school coach legend. How are you today, sir? Good. Good. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes. We've uh, come to know each other recently. Yep. I knew about you from afar for many years, so I'm excited for the conversation. Let's start with, there's a lot of places I could have started, but I read that back when you were coaching for OPRF, you would tell, 
tell your guys the main of the arena speech or quote, whatever it is. And this is state championship week. And so, you know, take yourself back to Monday of this week if you're the head coach at OPRF and you're getting your guys ready for the week. When would you inject that particular quote? And what's the meaning of it to you? Well, we do a lot of, we did a lot of, um, let me say first that, that the quote is framed on my five-year-old son's bedroom wall (laughs) and he has most of it memorized so and when we he will take laps with me as I carry around my seven month old and he will um do most of the quote you know he he says can I walk with you while while we're like calming the baby down before bed so uh it's a obviously really impactful thing in my life that I discovered when I got sick Mm. so it there was some weight behind it with the kids with the wrestlers as you know this is an area where it was like uh, you know, it had became very meaningful to me about stepping back into the arena um, after kind of getting knocked down. You yeah. Know? And um, so th- I always put, I always did it in the context of that with the high school team, but also, you know, it's, it's really, it's a great quote about focusing on what you can control. Mm-hmm. It's about courage under fire, right? All the things a wrestling coach talks about with his guys and, all that matters at the end of that quote is that you put yourself out there. And that's all you ever want from one of your wrestlers, right, is, is, is spend yourself on a worthy cause. You know, I mean, give yourself everything you have to that and walk off the mat with pride. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means you win and sometimes it means you lost. And, you know, it's an important lesson for the kids is most of us lost our last wrestling match. Yeah. And most of us are gonna. But, it's, but what really matters is while you're there, being present, being all there, right, total focus, total, total focus on what you control. And that is bringing your best, you know, foot forward when you step on the mat. So uh, under the lights in assembly hall, which can be intimidating, you know, you look at yourself and you identify uh, the one thing that's important. Nothing else is important. The winning is out of our control, right? The, the lights, the crowd, none of it's in our control. But how you represent yourself, your team, your family uh, on that wrestling mat under fire, right, is, is, says a lot about you. Yeah. So great way to kind of segue into the, the importance of, you know, the sports psychology of the end of the season in peaking. And I would always meld it into peaking as a choice, which I got from Tom Brands. And Really? I've it, never heard that before. It is. So I heard it from him somewhere. Okay. You know, I mean, you know. What does it mean to you, though? I mean, it, it, it is. This this idea that, like, that, you know, we need to get behind. You know, you hear these guys about, you know, obviously, I think my college coach, I mean, I remember my legs being so heavy at Big Tens once because we were running so many bleachers, like, two days before. Obviously, you don't want to do that. So you want to peak your guys physically. But come on, the science behind it is like, I don't have access to that. Right. You know what I mean? And these are 16-year-old kids. They're unbelievably resilient. <laughs> Most of them think they're cutting a lot more weight than they are. So recovery is not that big of a deal. Um, but for me, it was treat them like prize fighters. You know, this, this uh, you're never good enough deal that kind of coaches will put on kids. Uh-huh. Man, when you left, when we walked down like the tunnel at Assembly Hall, and the one year we had four state champs, it was like we had our own music. We had a walkout crowd. I mean, it was like we literally were walking out Roy Jones to like the <laughs> title fight. And I'm literally, Jeremy Powell, one of the what a guy I call the secret weapon, my cousin, 
not really my cousin. Um, he would walk out and he would scream, everybody move out of the way. Isaiah White's coming through the hall. Like the champ is here. You know, and so no like, way. And that was our thing was like, you know, it all melds into the thing is, you know, you choose who you are and how you represent yourself in that hall. Yeah. And um, the guys that bought into that, you know, typically did really well. And some guys, frankly, it, it broke some guys, you know, probably it created extra pressure. Uh, but those those are the guys that are looking for reasons to to fold under pressure. Mm -hmm. And I know what that's like. You know, I, I, I did that as an athlete. And so anyways, it was all built around um, you're, you're unique. You have done things that are unique. You are preparing to take that belief that you have in what we've done in our system and the way we work and the way we warm up and everything we do is just slightly better than everybody else. And you know, into now I'm going to put it forth in the arena and I am the man and I deserve to be the man because I've earned this spot in the arena. And this is glorious. Being able to be confident enough in what I've done leading up to this moment um, allows me to walk out there and really be my very best, you know, right. with all the dust and sweat and blood. And, and so... Um, that's a big deal I, I'm for, rambling but you get the point well it's a big deal for a high school kid too I mean for a high school kid going there and you know after putting in months and months of work to get there is as big a sacrifice as most kids that age are going to make and that's the beauty about wrestling is that you, you don't really know that while you're doing it but once you get done and look back you're like man that was pretty special what we were able oh, to do yeah. there um, but to your point all of the bravado and all of the hyping people up it wouldn't work if you didn't put in the work before that right so yeah. when you were running the show what was a typical 12-month program at OPRF? Maybe for some young coaches that are listening now, how did you structure it and organize it? Well, I think in this you brought up Brian Medlin before the interview, but the, one of the things that he and I always talk about is you've got to be willing to work 350 days a year. You know, I mean, I, I probably work more than that. You know, I, 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 I had like a come to, to, you know, the guy's moment with my now wife when we first moved in. She's like, you're on the phone or at the office 12, 10 to 12 hours every Sunday. I said, well, that's because I'm building a program. You know? And she's like, wait, what is this? You know? And she's working 100 hours a week as an attorney. Yes, but she, I mean, it was like, you're gone Friday, you're gone Saturday, all you can think about is, and I'm like, babe, if you ask me to walk away from this thing that I'm trying to build, it means, you know, um, you're not the woman for me. You know what I mean? So it goes all the way back to like, having the right woman, having the right set of, of values around what you really want to do. I mean, I, I, I respect a guy who says, you know what? I coach a little bit in the off season, but I have a family. I coach hard in the in season, and, uh, but I have a family. Mm -hmm. And I take my Sundays off. And when I go home, I turn my phone off. And so if you do that, okay. But in this day and age, you're not going to be successful at the highest levels. So if you really want to take it to the next level, you need to get on the Fargo staff. Your kids, I mean... Ellis Coleman and Greedy Coleman wrestled 122 and 121 matches between their Ellis's freshman and sophomore year and Greedy's sophomore and junior year. And Greedy went from being unknown to, frankly, getting hosed in the state finals. And Ellis became, you know, I, you know, I think he was national champ that year or, or really close. Um, but these guys, they were terrible at wrestling, you know. And then, but I took them all over the country. And they had nobody else to do it for them. So, you know. You got to be willing to do that type of stuff. I, yeah. I started our club because 
either we were going to start a club or we were going to keep going to, you know, taking four kids to Triton, four kids up to Evanston or this or that. So I invited the best teams in to beat us up. And I knew if I could get them in a room with us, you know, our kids would get tougher. And so that's how we started building. But um, I was seven days a week, 50 weeks a year. And uh, I did that for a long time. I'm really glad I'm not doing it anymore. (laughs) I'm doing it now and beat the streets, of course. But um, you've got to understand like the level of work and commitment from a coach. It is super easy to ask your kids to be there all the time when they know the first face they see and the last person to say goodbye before they leave the room is you. Yeah. They know that like, you know, I don't know how many times I took Sammy Brooks up in a room and did one-on-one 45 minutes with just him on stuff I still see him hitting now. You know what I mean? I mean, he still uses the single leg finish system that we, you know, I just saw him hit a bump trip in Russia. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, so, but I remember, I, I remember him being in seventh grade and coming up early before little Huskies practice and I would stay late and we would grab a kid. And, you know, I remember when he said, will you teach me the, that roll through tilt that he hit? I don't know how many times in college. Mm-hmm. And that's become known as the Oak Park tilt. But I took Ben Johnson who won maybe the greatest match or one of the greatest matches I've ever coached with this tilt. We picked top <laughs> in the third period in the match to be all state. And I took Ben and put him on top of Sammy. And then, you know, and then next thing you know, Sammy's hitting it out. Everybody hits it. So, um, you know, it's that little stuff that you remember. Yeah. The, it's the car rides home. And, you know, you're not supposed to put your, a kid in your car in Illinois. That's the worst rule I've ever heard. You know, I'm not a pervert. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, it's ridiculous. I mean, if, if I never put, if I never picked Greedy Coleman up, he would have never showed up. You know what I mean? Like, right. what do you, like that rule like ruins the coach player relationship for the at-risk kid. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like how is that kid going to get places? But anyways, so I probably broke a lot of rules in terms of putting kids in my car and, and renting vans and driving to Ohio to, you know, to make, to, to go to the world team trials and, and, to, you know, I bought kids plane tickets or I, or I helped buy, or I would buy them and get paid back. And I think that's probably against the rules too, but <laughs> we traveled the country and we did a bunch of stuff that, um, you, know, you got to do you have to bond my thing is trust love and truth right and the truth part is where you really say things to kids that matter but you can't say those things to kids unless you're putting 200 days a year in a minimum mm. you know and you have to have contact hours and you have to be there when their family's in crisis and you have to be there when they're in crisis and you have to give them structure and tough love and the things that they appreciate even though they might resent you half the time right and you know it's like uh, that's the you know, that's the bait. Our program was built on, and uh, you know, trust and love. And uh, you know, after that, you can say some real harsh things to kids. You know, <laughs> that need to be said. It's and so. That's, that's the thing that most coaches you never get that you never get to that place where you can speak truth to a kid and his family, and that they will accept it. I one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. His family situation was not good. And I just made the decision that he was moving out of his house at the end of the year. And it was, a, in retrospect, a great decision, but neither parents, who I'm very close with, who I loved dearly at the time, were happy with me. I mean, they were super unhappy with yeah. me. But I knew he was in a bad spot. And I had so much trust from them and so much love that they said, we trust you. And we're not happy about this, but we know why you're doing it. And, at, and afterwards, both of them said that was the correct move. You know what I mean? Now, I've made a lot of incorrect moves. Right. But that's because 
of all the times I spent with their parents. We had a parents' night once a month. And all the time I spent in their house and with their children. And you know what I mean? Like, you've got to put that those hours in. And if you're single and you're a coach, just... I just gave up being a sports fan and stopped going out with my friends. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> I, when they saw me, it was great. And we had some pops and, you know what I mean? Like it was, it, but the truth is, um, man, I didn't, I didn't really see my nephews and nieces grow up. And it's sad to say, and I know there's people who say, well, geez, that was, that's ridiculous. We're, we're very close now and for, as close as can be. But, I, but it's because I was investing in Lilla Sean Coleman. Mm-hmm. and a Jamar Johnson and you know what I mean and Sammy Brooks and all these guys that came up and Colin Rogers and all these guys who I mean I remember Colin getting in trouble at a graduation party and I was at his house for four hours that afternoon mm-hmm. and we talked about everything under the sun and he didn't have a father in his life and so that's you know what I mean so yeah. the mom and that's that's the stuff where I told my wife sorry you're gonna can- we're gonna cancel our Sunday night dinner or Saturday, I forgot what it was, but we canceled plans so that I could go to Colin Rogers' house and crush him for four hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? And say things to him that needed to be said. But it was a turning point in his life. And so I don't mind giving up some of those other things. And I don't know who, I was just telling my nephew yesterday, I can't name a single Bears quarterback, or a single Bears player other than the quarterback, and I never pronounce his name right. Um, <laughs> but but you, that, I look back, that's what, that's what, like, and I'm not comparing myself to Steve Jobs, but you look back at these, like, mega successful coaches and people, I bet Kale can't tell you who's running in the Democratic primary. I, I might be wrong, I don't know the guy, Yeah. but these people are so, I mean, you've talked to Dan Gable, right? Yeah. His favorite subjects are the sauna, the exercise bike, his workouts. He is a fanatic. Yeah. And I was never on that level. I mean, I've always read the, you know. I bet you're pretty close though. I mean. I'm not anymore. I mean, I actually at some point said, okay, I did that. It was really meaningful for me, but now I have children. Do you think you could have had kids back in the day? Like at the peak of your. I think I wouldn't have been as dedicated. I would have, I would have taken time away from my family. Yeah. And my, my wife would have forced me to. You know, and, I, and I'm in a really a unique situation where I could do that, mm-hmm. right? Brian Medlin's in a unique situation. Brian Medlin is a, is a more dedicated, harder-working coach now and always was than I ever was. I mean, beyond. It, it, it was like, man, I got to take it up a notch. Medlin's doing this, you know? No so, kidding. And we, we fed off each other. But the, the, his wife is a rock star. Mm. His life is so simple in every other area that he's able to just, you know, go to Russia for three weeks at a time. Yeah. And his kids are, I mean, now he's taking his son, but he, his kids are wonderful people. His wife, I mean, his wife's, you know, but my wife's working 80 hours a week. So when I'm gone, I stopped going to Fargo for that reason. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it, at some point, if I'm gone, you know. No one's around. Nobody's around. Yeah. So. And what, what people got to realize is that, to me, that sounds like, the best way to live all in on something. And I, I read that when you were like 33, 34, having a state championship team that you had built, having all these close relationships with your wrestlers, that was your life dream. Like you didn't dream up to be a millionaire being a banker in New York city. That was what you wanted to do. And you were doing exactly that. Um, in this life of like kind of service, one of the, the pieces that I thought was really interesting of how you got to that point is teaching this class at OPRF. Um, we said the acronym earlier. What was it? EAC. EAC. So I read that you said when you when someone leaves that class, 
when you were the teacher of it, when a student leaves that class, you want them to feel that they've been loved for the first time in their life because a lot of them haven't before. From somebody outside of their family. From someone outside yes. their family. Um, and I thought that was just one little nugget that impacted your coaching philosophy and who you are today. And I just thought it was really interesting. Could you talk about what was that class like? What was that experience like? And what were some of the things you did with the kids, like taking them, walking your dogs and stuff like that? It's just fascinating. Uh, so it's the same thing. Trust, love, and truth, right? So okay. you, relationship building. But what was the, can you describe uh, but, the kids that are in the program? Yeah, so, so if you got kicked out of Oak Park, um, you went to alternative school. But alternative school, the busing there, and kicked out for behavior issues, mm-hmm. not for social, emotional, like, like for... Like gang violence. Yeah, yeah. Disrespect the teachers, mother effing somebody, or, you know, now they don't kick you out for anything. But this classroom was formed to save the school money. But our kids were, when I started, escorted into the building late by security. They had to be with security at all times when they weren't with our classroom. So eventually we ended up with two classrooms. We changed that. We included them more. But they had segregated lunch, and they were escorted out of the building again. They couldn't come to any dances. They weren't allowed to come to a basketball game. They weren't allowed on campus. So it was basically like um, you know, an alternative school, but it was rough. I mean, it, you know, it was just... How did you get They to were be good kids. I mean, I, I shouldn't say they were good. Three of my ex-students are in jail for murder. But I loved those kids. I mean, when they were in my class, I mean, I'm sure they were doing bad stuff when they weren't. I mean, they, they're just kids, you know, yeah. and they screwed up bad, and obviously, and I'm not trying to take up for a murder. Right. Some of them did really stupid stuff, but, um, but you know, they're, when they're in your class, you know, that's, anyways, I, I volunteered for this job, okay. which, they, which took them by surprise. I was in the learning disabilities thing, and I just wanted to have control. I just wanted to be able to build my own curriculum and um, do what I wanted, so we did. You know, I taught, like, african-american music history from wc handy and the first blues song all the way up to the wu-tang clan and you know we took a whole semester to do it and it was awesome they learned about jazz and they learned about muddy waters and they learned about taking a blues electric and then the influence that that had on the 1980s uh you know anyways and how rap came about and obviously we spent a lot of time on rap and me talking to them about bad language (laughs) and i'm kidding but but you, you know, were real we, with him, though. Yeah, you know, dude, I mean, we—I mean, some of the stuff I, I can't tell you. I would like—I think people would—I would probably get called DCFS call. But I bought boxing gloves and headgear, and we had a, we had an alpha and a beta on our board from the top to the bottom. And me and Coach Collins, the assistant, were the alphas, and then one, two, three through the kids. And if you talk stuff to this guy, and you were number four, and he was number three, I would say, shut your mouth. If you want to take it upstairs, we'll take it upstairs. But we don't do this here. And so he'd say, yeah, I'm ready to challenge for the next spot. We, uh, you stack period, ranked him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so eighth period, we would go up. And, I, and, and then by then, by the time we got to the other side of the building in the wrestling room, I, they would be like, nah, I don't really want to box. No, man. You ran your mouth. Now you're going to box. So then, then I would box the kids. You know, Not really for real. Every once in a while, I'd hit one harder than I wanted to. But... It was awesome, man. It was like it was like uber macho bonding, but it was also, you know, there was some vulnerability there where kids had to like out like, hey, you have to identify, man. You're number six, and he's number three, because he's done these things, and you need to, you know what I mean? Like, wow. this isn't about talk, buddy. You need to produce something. So, and so our so we had a ranking system, and we had, you had them <laughs> write obituaries too, right? 
Yeah, I had a, that was that was fun. And then you had to, we did a lot of that stuff. Like, look what you're putting your mom through. Right. Like, look what you're doing. You know what I mean? Look what your life looks like in ten years. Like, guys, you got to understand. You're not tough. No matter what you do or what you say in the lunchroom or what you do outside of here, you're the bottom of the barrel in society. So I would try to get them to say that without breaking them down too mm-hmm. much. But like, look, you, you got to understand, this is what people that are doing the things that you do do in 10 years, and that's bad, mm-hmm. right? And if they kids trusted you and loved you enough, you know what I mean? You could say that truth to them, right? And it, sometimes it resonated, sometimes it didn't. But I just ran into a kid whose dad owns a restaurant downtown, a white kid, one mm-hmm. of the rare white kids that was in our class, who hugged me, his dad came and said, hey, we had, and he was, I love the kid, but he was a hot mess in high school. He's, mm-hmm. doing, he's doing all right now. So he's a success story. But um, you know, he was one of those kids that didn't appreciate anything he had in his life. And you know, just kinda, he was just rough, rough dude. And um, so you look back and now I, I run into these kids every once in a while in town and um, I had, <laughs> Anyways, that's uh, you hope you had some, you know, even if they're in jail, right? You know, there was a guy that put time into me who loved me, Coach Collins, Coach Powell, and they, they didn't call me Coach; they called me Powell. Yeah, and um, Collins and Powell, and then we, after Coach Collins left, uh, another guy came in who was awesome. But um, would they ever challenge you for the alpha spot on the board? No, man. No, no one even thought. And about if it. you fought in our classroom, I attacked you. So. It was awesome. Did that happen? Oh, yeah, man. I slammed kids. I never hit a kid or right. really, but I manhandled them enough to like, because otherwise, like when I came in, these dudes were punching each other all the time. You know, but by the end, they like, we had our own fridge in the class. It was like a, it was like a little fraternity. Mm-hmm. There was pride in EAC and, you know, we did art projects and music projects and, you know, stuff that was like you know, semi-meaningful in their life. And I can't profess to be a great teacher, uh, but we did have a great culture. That's... And the kids did want to be there. And they I think we did empower them a little bit. And I do think they felt like somebody really deeply cared about them and who they were. And, and through that, we were able to say things to them that, and hopefully get them to see things. Sometimes it works. Sometimes they murdered somebody three years later. So... But, I mean, so that's two different organizations where you've been able to impact culture profoundly, both the wrestling team and that. And I think leaders, you know, people in leadership positions are always asking, how do we build culture? And it's one of the things that, as I've done research on Gable over the past six months, they had a great culture. Phenomenal. And it was, everyone bought in and they trusted Gable. They trusted you, Coach Powell, you know, with their life. And as a result of that, they'd do anything for them. And you can be direct with them, right? And... That's everything, right? You yes. can just cut the BS, just get right to, hey, I'm not... That's, that's something I got from Gable. Really? That's something along the lines in coaching. It, dealing with feelings is so inefficient mm-hmm. that I saw the way Gable... You know, there's the famous video. You didn't want to beat him. You wanted a tie, so that's what you got. Yeah. You, know, so you didn't want to beat him. Yeah, you didn't want to beat him. You didn't want to beat him. So um, he seemed to always be telling their, their, their athletes the truth. Mm-hmm. And I was like how do you get to that point where you don't have to worry about feelings anymore? And I, through trial and error, a lot of error, mm-hmm. you know, I figured out that, you know, they just, you know, they just need to love you enough. You know, they just needed to really trust you and know that you had that you were going to say things to them that they didn't want to hear, but that was important that they listened to. So 
Do you think there's ways to... So obviously one way to build trust is through action. And they see you doing the right things over and over. They see you caring about them over and over and over. Um, so that's a big part of it. Putting in the hours, putting in the work. What is maybe something else that you've noticed over your years looking back? This is crucial to building trust with a young person. Vulnerability. Mm. Which is something I heard from Gable in your podcast about him. He's talking about he's letting he's going to the bar and having a couple beers and he's letting the the culture got away from him. Yeah, and it was he got too big for his britches and that's a problem for me in my life. I suffer from hubris and anybody listening to this who knows me knows that you know what I mean. So, um, that that part really resonated with me because I look back in 2012 we lost, and it wasn't hubris that year. It was self, but it was self involvement. And that I had been sick and this ESPN crowd is, I'm sitting there, I'm so disgusted with the way that ESPN thing, and I'm talking about how tired I am. Who says that crap? You know what I mean? Like, so I'm looking back at that, like, I blew it that year. We got upset and our culture wasn't strong enough. And it was, there were some things that really tried on that team. There were some real difficult things on that team. Mm-hmm. A couple of the guys that lost have been going through a lot and, you know, but man, did I blow that. And, and I made, I made a, you know, I made a, some serious adjustments after that, but there was, but I cost those kids a state championship. And uh, you really feel that one hundred percent. Wow, that is one hundred percent. I mean, Carl Sandberg had no business beating us. They'll tell you that they upset us at two or three different weights. They won two or three different swing matches. I mean, we could have blown them out. Yeah, and uh, that that one was on me. So listen to Gable. It's like I'm thinking. Obviously, this isn't the, this isn't the, the NCAs, and it's small time high school wrestling, but. For me in my life, it was, you know, being able to self-reflect, being vulnerable, teaching kids about self-reflection, about being their own biggest critic without, um, without crushing how they think about themselves, right? It's a tough one. So yeah. separating my identity, and this is a really big piece now, you know, with this like whole, I, I fit, for the lack of a better word, the snowflake culture, you know, like you can't critique anybody because they take it as it's a hit on their person, right? Yeah, taking it so personal. this is not about you. It's about the action or this specific thing you're doing or this feeling you're having. And so um, being able to separate those things is real important. But the, the vulnerability piece is, I, mean, I think I told the team the next year I blew it. And uh, I talked a lot about my own failures and shortcomings as a man the things I was working on, the things that I was, my failures and shortcomings as a, as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a big piece that, man, I, I can't, I, I just can't tell you how much I run into coaches who are too prideful. Like, well, it, like, and, 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 and this like revisionist history, like, man, I knew you in high school. You weren't that tough. Neither was <laughs> I dude. You know what I mean? Like, like Josh Ogunsanya at Oak Park right now, he's tough. He's got a 4.7. He cuts weight and still gets his English paper in and gets 100% on it. You know what I mean? The kid lives unbelievably disciplined life. He works harder than I ever worked in my life. And frankly, I was probably a better wrestler than him or you know, maybe more talented athlete. But that's what toughness looks like. You know what I mean? So to say this generation or you know, like these kids yeah. or, or everybody's soft, it's just a, it's a weak way to do things. And for to hear Dan Gable, the toughest human of all time, mm-hmm. say, I screwed up, I made mistakes, and here's where they were, and here's the adjustment I made. Man, every coach should listen to that. I, well, I appreciate that, and I think it's, the vulnerability was incredible in that interview. I, I don't know how, 
he I must have just caught him on a good day, but man, he was he was sharing things like that. And one of the things that I'm sure you tell your guys is academics and schoolwork, right? Because I've read that when you were in high school, you were undefeated state champion senior year. You were all in on wrestling. It's all you cared about. But from what I read your junior year, you didn't even get to wrestle because of ineligibility. Right. And so you're a man now who's so disciplined, has everything buttoned up. Did you even think at the time that not doing schoolwork was a bad thing? Or do you know you were doing wrong by not getting your shit done? I knew then? I was doing wrong. I was a I was just a prick. Just a knucklehead back then. <laughs> I was just yeah. a, you know, I was a, you know, one of these guys, you know, my mom took me to get uh, diagnosed, you know, screen for ADD or AD and I'm like mom look you know this is not real yeah if I tried hard I would get good grades now I'm not I'm not a natural student I don't have a great attention span you know what I mean I'm, I'm probably dyslexic I'm undiagnosed but I'm, you know I've, I think I've, I've a decent uh, IQ but I my my strengths are not um, classroom in sitting still and paying attention and taking notes and being organized I'm a get up, walk around, do things, talk to people type guy. And so um, I was just never disciplined or hardworking enough to be a good student. Man. You know, what, what didn't come natural. And I, I also wasn't a naturally driven kid. I was an ultra competitive human being. I always have been my whole life. I wanted to win at every contest I was in. Um, but no, I was just I was just kind of a bum. Just I mean, I, you know, and, and I, I mean... I won in the games I was playing. You know, I climbed the social ladder at school. I, yeah. I had a bunch of hot girlfriends, and that was what was important to me at the time. And I lifted weights, and you know, and I'm, so I was winning the macho game. It was the wrong game to be playing. Right. Um, but I, from a very early age, um, I pushed back at authority. I pushed back at my father and my mother. And I can see it in my son now. You know, it's like, oh, jeez. You know, I just, but you've always just been please like, be a good student. You've always been like a guy who likes the underdog, though, right? And you kind of had a chip on your shoulder, um, and you fight for the underdogs now. Um, I just think it's interesting, though, that it got to the point where it was so bad that they wouldn't even let you wrestle. I mean, how, I mean, I can't even imagine a, a stud wrestler not being eligible for the state tournament. Well, and the crazy thing is, is, I actually think I passed my finals in those classes, which would have given me a passing grade. And the te I was so bad to those teachers that they failed me anyways. Mm -hmm. I literally walked up in my math final and said, I got 100% on this and handed it in. And she looked at me and said, I don't care. <laughs> she failed me. <laughs> so, and I deserved it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, it, was a, it was a great lesson for me. Yeah. It was unbelievably humbling at a time that I needed it. Uh, my, you know, I was in a, not a great space in my life. My dad had cancer. My parents had, were going through a really ugly divorce yep. Yep. and, uh, I was acting out in ways that I, that needed to be curbed and that curbed me. I mean, that was really, it had to be heartbreaking. Yeah. It, 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 that, that changed the course of my life forever. I was the next year I dedicated myself. I got the good enough grades to be a qualifier. I was a non-qualifier going into my senior year. One year later, I wouldn't even have qualified. They upped the standards. I would have been a Juco guy. So um, you know, telling those stories to the kids. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's is, the whole point is that you've been there. It's like you haven't had suburb life because a lot of people think OPRF, I do. I've seen the great facilities. I think that's a very rich suburb. Everyone who goes there is very fortunate. I've learned through researching you, that's not the case at all. Half the school comes from like the Austin neighborhood and the Austin neighborhood is one of the, maybe not from there, but you know, it's a very rough area, right? And so yeah. I, I always thought OPRF was like this very wealthy suburb, kind of like a Naperville. Um, and kids who have not had that, they can't really relate to someone who's been through that, right? And so like you can relate to them because you've had these experiences. Your parents are divorced. You've had up and downs with grades. You've had up and downs with your ego getting in the way. And so you can relate to those kids on that level. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yes and no. I mean, I, I didn't, you know. But you had a first time I ever went to to Greedy and Ellis Coleman's house. Their mom had a deep fryer on the table, and around the deep fryer, it looked like it hadn't been moved in years. All the all the lacquer on the on the wood was like bubbled up because of the overflow from the oil. And their house smelled like what I at the time called the Chinese restaurant. It's the only thing I'd ever smelled like that. It smelled like deep fried food. And I said, you know, what is that? Oh, that's a deep fryer. So I come to learn a couple months later, she cooked all her meals in a deep fryer. I can't relate to that. Yeah. You know what I mean? My dad bought, bought normal you know, food. We had, I mean, I, I grew up in a fluid. My, neither of my parents graduated college. Both my parents are first generation American. I mean, there's plenty of things to say, okay, I grew up by the bootstrap, but I watched my parents work their tails off. Yeah. Um, but I was educated in a bunch, you know what I mean? So could I really relate? No. Could I be vulnerable enough to them to say, you know what, this guy, okay. And I don't believe you have to look like somebody to relate to them. Yeah. I'm not going to sit there and pretend what it's like to not have a father in your life. I had an amazing father. I still almost failed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't even imagine how hard these guys are. I can't ever truly empathize with what Lilishawn and Alice Coleman went through, right? Yeah. But I certainly can tell them I don't care. <laughs> you yeah. know, what, what matters now is that you take care of your business and that you build yourself into something and I will help you do that. Because whatever that was, I, I, I'm sorry you went through that. Yeah. And I will always keep that in the back of my mind, but I want to make it sure that you're not an absentee father. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that you can take care of your family and own your own home someday the way Ellis Coleman does, right? right? And so anybody can do that. If you can sit there and be with a kid and be present, and you know, I'm older now, yeah. and I walk up to kids and I clearly don't have the same impact I did when I was 27 and my neck was too big for my shirts. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's a very different deal um, now, but, but connections are connections, man. And, and this idea that if you're an at-risk black kid or an at-risk brown kid, you can't have a white coach who, no, man, you just need somebody to invest in you. Yeah. I mean, two of the most impactful coaches in my life were black guys who I can't relate to in any other thing other than wrestling. And they helped me win the state championship. One of them coaches would beat the streets. Now his son's going to be a probably a four-time national qualifier, hopefully an All-American at Stanford. You know what I mean? Like he, this coach Doc was paramount in my life. Mm -hmm. And so he grew up in LeClaire Courts on the south side. I grew up in River Forest. Yeah. <laughs> Two <laughs> different worlds. But we bonded over wrestling. We came to love each other. And it's a different, it's a little, you know, so... Well, the reason we're kind of talking about this is that when you were the coach at OPRF, you had a team that was, I don't know if it's minority heavy or just some of the best wrestlers happened to be minority. But I mean, you've said yourself that it was at-risk guys you were helping most of the time. Um, was that the proponents of the team or it just... Yeah, so we were primarily minority, particularly with the starters, like 2014, 2015, those really good teams, 2016. Um, I don't know, we're probably 85 or 90% brown and black kids. Right. And um, of those kids, most of them were at risk. Yeah. Or, you, know, you know, not all. I, them, but... Here's the deal. They don't really, I don't think Devontae Holmes ever thought of himself as at risk. Right. right? He's super self confident and everything else, but he was raised by his sisters. Mm -hmm. you know, I, didn't, I didn't know he had a father in his life 
I didn't know he had a father until his gradu- high school graduation party. His dad showed up in a Michigan shirt. You know, what I, was like, <laughs> I was like, all right. So, um, but Devante, um, you know, so it wasn't like, hey, you're an at-risk kid. Again, yep. you're just a kid. Yep. You know what I mean? Come be part of this really awesome culture. Yeah. And so, and the other thing is, I would never put it as, I was out there to help them. They helped themselves. You know, you create the vehicle. You create this welcoming culture. You create this arduous work. Uh, but they buy into it. They do the work. Mm-hmm. You, I, I plan the workouts. I yelled a lot during workouts. I mean, our workouts, I remember the Dardanes came back from Minnesota once at, on Christmas break and they worked out with us, which I think is illegal, but I don't care. Um, but, you know, they said, man, we forgot how hard the workouts were here. Wow. You know, this is coming from Minnesota yeah. with J-Rob. So that was, that was one of my great compliments but, <laughs> of all time. But, um, you know, we, we did that, but they had to buy into working that hard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so kids change themselves. And whether you're an at-risk kid or, you know, a white kid from a well-educated, affluent family, um, I think the beauty of Oak Park was that's what you saw. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw, would walk in the room and um, a kid whose dad went to Cornell, wrestled at Cornell, you know, this is Blake Dressel and Jamar Johnson were the captains of my first team. They were best friends. When I met Jamar, his mom had just been shot. And they just moved from the west side. You know what I mean? Wow. And, uh, and these guys, I mean, were like, you know. They were tight. I w- we'd walk in the restroom. Jamar would be taking a, a nap with his head on, on Blake's lap. And, <laughs> you know, it was like, so I think that was the beauty of Oak Park. Is, and and the, the beauty of the town of Oak Park is it's socioeconomically and racially diverse. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, um, you know, a little more prepared maybe when you leave Oak Park High School. Yeah. And from our program in particular where, you know, you walk in a lunchroom, it's pretty segregated there. But, our, you know, you're, you're mixing with these guys. Yeah. And we've got guys going to the Naval Academy, white kids whose parents are, you know, PhDs from Michigan and, you know, doing this type of stuff, going to this great college or that great college. And then right alongside them, you have Adam Lemke Bell, who probably, you know, whose parents are wonderful people, and but probably would have been considered at risk. Uh, going to Northwestern or Devontae Mahomes or Andre Lee or, you know, some of these guys. And um, not that your listeners know who these guys are, but, but they're they, studs. They're, yeah. And they're, and they're, um, they're kids who, who, whose lives definitely could have been different and not as good as they are right now without the sport of wrestling and the program at Oak Park. So why do you think wrestling, I've heard you say it's sports in general, a good way to teach people. But I've heard you say on a couple of calls we've had together where wrestling is just the best for teaching kids life lessons and discipline. You know, wrestling, it, it never lies. It always tells the truth. You know, like, why do you think that is? Or what about the great, it? I said, my line is it's the greatest vehicle for self-improvement in the world. Um, because there is nothing like wrestling, right? There is no, there's no other sport that takes this level of work. There's no other sport that takes this level of physical toughness. There's no other sport that takes this level of emotional toughness. There's no other sport that takes this much discipline, right? So just from the things that most people talk about, right? The teamwork stuff, which is important, being a great teammate. And man, being a great teammate, you know, in basketball's clapping after they, after they met somebody makes a free throw or misses a free throw. You know, I, I'm joking, but being a, being a, Downtown Joey Brown in 2009 showed up and weighed 124 pounds after the state tournament. He didn't qualify for state, but this was like, you're allowed to practice on Sunday. 
Tuesday night we're wrestling Carl Sandberg and they were really good. This is our first state championship team. And Joey Brown was, he could be a 105, he weighed 124 pounds. And I could tell there was something wrong, but you know, whatever. So I keep gets on the scale and I went insane. I kicked him out of the room and Ellis Coleman followed him out of the room, got him into a local health club and stayed in that room until he was down to weight with him. And I'm talking about Ellis was like six pounds underweight. You know what I mean? And, and it was like, that's what a great teammate is. And he did this, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's basketball players that do that for other basketball, but, but nothing is like that. No. I mean, name another sport where something like that happens. Where like, I'm going to be this resourceful. I'm going to go suffer with you alongside you, my brother, so that you can help our team win this. You know, so there's that. Um, and then there's going out scant- scantily clad. Um, and I know that's a sore spot in the wrestling world, whatever. Yeah. I'm all for the two-piece. But even if you're wearing a two-piece, under a light, on a wrestling mat, and getting your A whipped at the hands of another man or woman in front of a couple hundred or a couple thousand people, there's nothing like that. Nothing. Not a home run. No. Not a, not a pick to pass. There is nothing like that in sport. Mm-mm. Right. So there's a vulnerability and a humility there. Yeah. That's better, right? You are forced to confront yourself. And I'm coaching the five to eight-year-olds at Little Huskies now, and their parents go, but Jimmy is so, he's, and this is not Jimmy, my, one of my favorite Little Huskies, but Jimmy, just the general Jimmy. Um, Jimmy is, he's so emotional after he loses. And I said, that's why wrestling's the best. And they look at me and go, you're right. I said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And understand that he's getting better as a human. Your your son is developing resiliency, emotional resiliency. He is learning how to fail. Mm-hmm. Nothing teaches that. No. Every football game I ever lost, I was like, man, that guy missed a tackle. He, he got, you know, I mean, it was like, yeah, I did my part. You know, so, <laughs> but man, when you lose in wrestling, you either lie to yourself or you're forced to tell yourself the truth. And that's my thing about wrestling tells the truth, right? Here's what I didn't do. Um, here's what I need to do. It's time to get to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the most arduous work in sport. Well, how so. lucky are we that it's considered a sport with the other high school sports? I was just being interviewed by someone who's an MMA guy. He's like, what is it about wrestling? I go, well, we're, we're really lucky that, to me, it's a martial art. But we're lucky that the schools think it's a sport and it gets lumped in with the school sports because that means kids want to do it. They're part of the team. It's, but it's unlike all the other sports, right? It's, it's, no, there's no other martial art, um, at the high school sport level. There's no boxing. There's no jujitsu. So we're very lucky that people consider it a sport and it gives us a lot of opportunity to, to be more in touch with the kids. I, uh, have, um, regularly said over the years, it's half sport, half martial art. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm not a you know, I don't know anything about Upkido, but I'm assuming <laughs> wrestling's better than Upkido. So I don't want to call it a martial art, but, um, but I, I totally agree with you. It is a very, it's very unique in, in the sport, in the sporting world. Right. And it's something that in the culture where people call other people snowflakes, which I, again, I don't agree with, but you know, yeah, there are some things where like, let's protect this, let's protect this, let's helicopter parent. I mean, that's, there is something to that, right? It's the last, it's the last bastion of like teaching kids old fashioned bootstraps work ethic yeah. and you know the stuff that really is going to be meaningful when young men become older men and when young women become older women. Right. And uh, I mean, you can't 
that those lessons are invaluable. Invaluable. And you, everyone who knows your story knows this, you were kind of put to the test of that. I mean, you for a long time said, you know, all these things about wrestling, it teaches discipline, perseverance, so forth. Uh, 2009, you were put to the test of that. Um, talk us through that experience. You were diagnosed with a serious um, illness, sickness, whatever you want to call it. Um, talk us through that, that, those first couple of days and what happened there um, for the folks who don't know your story. So I, I, long story short, I lost a little over 40 pounds of muscle. I have a muscle wasting disease, muscle weakening disease. Again, I, it's called yeah. a bunch of different things called polymyositis. Um, I basically went from, you know, I woke up, we won the state championship. I looked at my wife, my now wife, who's my fiance at the time. And I said, I, I don't know that my life could get any better than this. You know, I was a kid who like would have been voted least likely to ever do anything. You know what I mean? And, and here I am the peer of these teachers that, that, you know, a respected peer amongst these teachers who probably loathed me at one point. Um, and you know, we, we were able to take this program from, you know, the depths of our conference. To, uh, don't get me wrong, my first team that was handed to me from the head coach, we won conference. But a couple of years before that, we were awful. And, and you know, we, so with this, we had this great journey to the state championship. And I was like, you know, I finally feel like, um, you know, for a little while, my demons were not chasing me, you know, and then, mm-hmm. uh, and then this hit me. In the background of all this was this kind of fatigue and, and weakness I was feeling that I thought was, I was chalking it, I was 33 at the time, I was chalking it up to 32 and 33. Um, you know, just being out of shape. I wasn't spending enough time in the in the doing cardio and I'm, I'm doing too much coaching and not enough mm-hmm. wrestling. And, uh, you know, that's not what it was. And a couple of weeks later, I get diagnosed with a muscle biopsy and uh, turn my whole life on its head. So I went from having more energy. It's what I call my superpower. You know, I just had charisma beyond. Mm-hmm. I could sleep like three hours a night. And, you know, you read about those people that didn't need to sleep. I was legitimately one of those people. I did not sleep. I could work 16-hour days, and I loved it, and I had enough energy, and I was always the highest energy guy in the room. And a lot of our culture and a lot of my coaching was based on that and not research and not studying Dan Gable and John Wooden. And, you know, so then it was stripped from me. You know, my what I call my superpower was taken from me, and that's this charisma that everybody wanted to be around. It was infectious, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so um, I had to rebuild myself from scratch. And it was like, you know, I think probably what you're referring to is, you know, I, am I, am I, what I've been promising these kids they would have that when they were older, right. is this real for me now? Because now I'm being really tested. I've lived a charmed life. I, my parents were alive. I, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I have no college debt. You know what I mean? Like I'm like living this great, and I have this incredible woman I, I was marrying, and um, my life was wonderful. But now I'm hit with this, and uh, my very identity was questioned. Um, and I went from being the most energetic to the least energetic, mm-hmm. and the most charismatic to the least charismatic. And I'm walking with a cane, a sword cane. <laughs> of course. Uh, but, you know, I was crapping my pants, man. I mean, it was like I was having difficulty swallowing. I mean, it was like, A, I thought I was going to die for a long time. But B, when I when I got over that hump, it was still like, well, you I mean, this thing's not going to go away. You're going to feel like this I mean, I can't, I can't yeah. will myself out of this. Right. And, um, you know, to this day, I don't know what it feels like to feel normal. And so we're, we're you know, 
11 years later and I don't, I have a new normal. What is your CPK count now? Uh, it's probably about 600 right now, okay. so maybe 700. I'm not doing great. It gets down to like 300. I don't test it very often anymore because at some point I just kind of, I, I, you know, I used to go like weekly and, and I used it as a barometer for how I need to live my life in it, but it, it kind of set me up for understanding some things. I've now, I'd now do a whole alternative regimen with diet and different drugs and, and, and so I, I've, I played with it for a long time to get myself to be stable. So yeah. now I'll go from like almost normal sometimes and i can tell you when that is it's not right now yeah to a couple hundred higher you know normals 200 or less or 190 less parts per million at my sickest i was twenty-seven thousand. and that was in that spring right that was in that spring and then i you know i hovered around like four to six thousand for a while which is horrible like i don't wish it on my worst enemy and uh that's when i really like like I thought I beat it and then it came back and I, you know, I was really faced with some things. That's when I found the man in the arena and Invictus. And, you know, I, I started like this process of building myself as a real coach and a real, um, builder of culture Yeah, because I couldn't do it just being a psycho anymore and just working it. Yeah. So, um, I worked a lot less and I worked a lot smarter and, you know, we went from being state champs to national champs. And so, Pretty cool. It's you know? cool, and it's if you think any of us, you know, who I know, people I know, people you know, we think we have a bad day. You know, sometimes it really is a bad day. Your mom dies, your dad dies, right? Right. But most of the time, it's not. You know, like whatever's bothered you, that sales call went bad. It's not real hardship. Um, and even though you were kind of preaching all these lessons about wrestling for so many years, you really got thrown to the test here, right? I mean, even yes. up to that point, your hardest point in your life maybe was that you didn't feel like your college career could have gone as good if it should have right right it's like okay that's child's play. yeah and i wish i would have studied harder right which would have studied harder um, been nicer to my mom nicer so, to your mom so. but like these are things that's like yeah at the time it was important but you know all of a sudden april you get this call and you can't even do four pull-ups and you used to i couldn't do- hang from a bar and how, did end. it happen that fast or like were you at the beginning of that season at, were you feeling weak no it, i actually had, had probably had the disease for two or three years prior so I would lose a bunch of weight in the season, and then I would gain it back. The summer of 2008, I did either six or eight dips with a hundred pounds strapped to me. You know, I was climbing out, and you know, we did the we did a big outdoor backpacking trip, and then my buddy and I, a coach, went you know uh, uh, rock climbing, and I was so I was still very active. I was mountain biking all the time. Um, but it took me a couple months to like build up again. And that's why I thought I was out of shape, but I look back at it now in the fall, maybe the spring of 2006 or sometime I, I went and had a random blood test. It was like a cholesterol screening, but they screened you for a bunch of other stuff. And my liver enzymes were high CPK. And so I I went in, I had a, I had a ultrasound they said, you have a fatty liver. What could be causing this? I'm like, I don't drink during the season. You know, I, I don't. You know, it was just all these things that they're like, okay, well, maybe you take too many supplements. I was taking that spark stuff all the time. Okay. So maybe you take too many supplements, go off your supplements, and I got better. But then it hit me hard in 2009. And I only look back at that retrospectively. I didn't know what I was going through at the time. Yeah. But then when it really hit me hard, then it was like full in swing autoimmune disease where my immune system was totally out of whack. So, uh, but 
to your point, um, I got to model the things I was saying for the kids. Right. And right. I did. Right. And for the first time in my life, um, you know, can I swear on the podcast? Of course. I wasn't full of shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, so I was able to be the man. I was telling the kids that I was, that I was, that I was, and that I wanted them to be. Right. And so, and that became, that became my big line is I, I would go in the bathroom underneath the practice and I, and I would and recite the man in the arena or Invictus to myself. And I would say, be the effing man they want you to be. Yeah. You know, you have a decision to make right now. So, and that I would talk to myself. I walk up in the wrestling room and announce my presence. And and, uh, and it's you know, five flights, right? So at the time, you're that was a journey even to get up there. This was right below that. Okay. So the 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 bathroom I would go in is right under the restroom. So it was one more flight. But yes, like you know, does the huffing and puffing from coming up the stairs? You know, I would stop and have to rest frequently when I was really sick. But e- even when I'm coaching, does the huffing and puffing walking up the stairs? it can create a downward mental spiral. So if you're not saying the right things to yourself, this is stuff I never really had to do before in coaching. Um, I was always on nine, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't say the right things to yourself, you're going to walk in there and you're going to, you're going to give off the wrong energy. You're going to be overly negative. Little shit's going to, you know, little stuff. I should say, you can is, 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 well, right. <laughs> try not to, I got a five year old, in the <laughs> but um, you know, the little stuff's going to get to you and you're not going to be a great coach. Yeah. You know, so your, your choice is give into this, be weak. You know what I mean? Do what, 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 you know, how would you coach yourself in this situation? Right. And the answer was be the man they want you to be, be the man you, your, your wife wants you be the man your wife fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And I fail a lot at that at both of them, you know, and, and there's times where the disease gets to me and I have a headache and I feel achy and you know, so um, but there's also times where I say the right things to myself. Doing podcasts like this reminds me for days or weeks to say the right things to myself and be aware of my um, mental state and my physical state and be disciplined with my diet and my lifestyle. And so, Well, they say the most important conversation you have is the one you have with yourself. And so, right. I mean, I didn't realize, I mean, just from meeting you, how, you know, I've realized how important that is. But um, one story in particular about this journey was, 2010 you thought you were good you're feeling real good again like your cpk is down to normal levels then it comes back and that's when you're like shit that's when that that crushed me that like that's when i started thinking about killing myself i just didn't want to live anymore i mean i was like i can't do this you know what am i going to do this for the next 50 years like how could you even drag on like that yeah so you think about the worst flu you've ever had that's what that feels like at about four or five thousand cpk where like you know that's going to end in 48 72 hours you know what i mean and yeah. now it's like, and then you talk to everybody about how bad it was but now it's like 6 months of that you know and or 4 months or 8 months of that where you don't i mean it's, there is no you are in the dark and you get why people go in their basement and wither until they die yeah you really do it's hard to eat well it's hard to do anything well it's hard to be nice to people you feel so bad it's hard to be nice to people for me yeah <laughs> you know? yeah you know you my, were like my default was to be a total prick yeah and uh um so fighting all that and losing battles and winning battles um that was the um microcosm i was always trying to teach the kids exactly so wrestling saved my life again 
you know. I mean, um, and, and to a whole, I mean, to a level we can't even understand. And then years later, you have one of the best state championship state championship teams ever out of Illinois, twenty fourteen. Uh, the best. The best. Thank you. Thank you. The best. Um, Unquestionably. What, what are a couple stats from that team, Coach? Ten all staters. Uh, four in the five in the finals. Four champs. Uh, I think we had 14 qualifiers that year, maybe 13. But we for sure blew whatever the point total was. They don't keep an individual score. I think you would beat Mount Carmel in 96, those yes, teams? Yes, yes. I get into it with one of my buddies all the time. He was on the, one of those teams, 94, 95. They were good. But they ranked like fourth in the country. Come on. And you guys were ranked one at the end of the year? At 2014, I think one of the two polls, we were ranked one and we were two in the other. We lost a duel that year. That was also my fault, for sure. But every, long story, but we lost a duel to um, Apple Valley. They dropped seven guys to a weight class they would never wrestle again for the second day of the clash. And they needed six of those moves to go right and six went right. Jeez. And we got pinned. Kamal Bay got pinned by Mark Hall. Oh. He was the first match up and didn't know he had him. And I think he freaked out a little bit. But he he was good enough to that to be a decision. The next year, I think they went 14-10 or something like that. Um, 14-8 or 14, you know, something like that. But, you know, and they so they moved away from Mahomes. They moved away. It was They made a bunch of really good moves. They got every single call in the duel from the Minnesota refs. Were you going berserk or what? Including, and this, they had a kid who would never go to school again in Apple Valley. This is over break. <laughs> so he had been kicked out of school and wrestled there. And I don't know, I'm not accusing them of being, a, but it was like, come on. Yeah. You know, so that's stuff that like, you know, I probably would have done too. But, but anyways, long and short of it is that kid never went to that school again. And for sure locked hands three times with the la- in the last 30 seconds that the refs just didn't call that would have won us the match. <laughs> was so gassed he couldn't move. He's wrestling Matt Rundell, who's a state champ for us, was a stud. And he kept, he kept um, that's the final match. They just decided not to give it to Rundell. And so there was some of that stuff. But we blew it. That was on me. Did you anticipate? I didn't have, I did not, I did not do a good job. I, I lit the team up the night before because a couple of them were way overweight. And rather than, you know, I called the kids out in front of the team. I said, you know, you guys aren't holding these guys account. I was super negative with them and probably way too harsh. I was ornery the next day. You know, I was like on edge. Um, and our team wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And we lost a bunch of matches that we should have won. And uh, uh, that was on me. It's interesting. Later in the year, we would have won that duel by 20 points. But it sounds to me like that's one of the things where I've heard you're naturally a pessimist, but you try to be an optimist. Um, I can't believe that because to me, you seem like an optimist. But um, maybe that was one of those situations where it was, and you've been at the highs and lows of that scale, but um, maybe that was one of those scenarios where whatever reason, pessimism had just slipped in um, that night before. Or was it not even that? I don't know if it's, I think I'm pessimistic um, in the short view and almost always optimistic in the long view. This is from a speech you gave in 2015 at the conference, whatever sickness, whatever it's called, you're at that conference giving a speech and you go, the five principles are, you go, 
filled relationships, courageous, gratitude, optimism. And you go naturally, or I have been in the past, a pessimistic person, but I was a realist. Realism is just a scam word for pessimism. So I couldn't right. agree more That's on that. Right. I That's hate right. when people say they're realists because I heard Will Smith say this in video when I was like in college. He's like, realists, like they don't achieve anything. Like, you know, why do you want to be a realist? And Will Smith said that. And I'm like, fuck yeah. All right. That's, that's how I want to live. Amen. That's how I want to live. I love Will Smith. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, yes, I am, I am a naturally pessimistic, self-critical, critical of everybody else around me. It really works well for me as long as I don't let it get Did that far to be too much. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I look back now, I'm a moderate, more moderate human just in every respect, but I, I could have handled that situation much differently and much better. So, um, yeah, maybe it got to me. Yeah. And just that, you know, those teams were a lot to, they were a lot to handle. You know, there's a lot of pieces, a lot of difficult parents, a lot of difficult kids. And, uh, you know, so I think that weekend was a moment of, I mean, that weekend changed me. It changed our team. We needed that. We would have never had the state tournament we had without that. Um, so it was good. But I definitely think we were the best team in the country. That was the best team I ever coached. The next year, we were the consensus number one. We're going to do I a, think. We're going to do a special on that here once this part two is okay. wrapped up. Cool. Um, and I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. I won't keep you much longer. I cannot let you out here without some how-to advice for some of the coaches this weekend and for some of the coaches building their programs. You're a program builder. You came in, flipped OPRF from, you know, okay team to nationally top three top one top two give us some program building advice or you can take it a couple ways one i'm really curious if you were looking at a 12-month schedule how much are you lifting and running in the in season versus the off season how much are you doing conditioning through wrestling versus running just give us some type of uh program building how did you structure things um let me say about this weekend okay uh Big matches are won by the guy who has four and the and the guy who doesn't have three, right? Or the guy who has six and doesn't have five. And so Matt returns, short time rides, short time escapes, hard clean finishes. That's your focus at the end of the year. You know, can you pay, make a guy pay for a bad shot? And not by defending it, but 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 Put, you know, getting on top and putting a hard ride on him and Matt returning him twice in the last 30 seconds because if you finish the first period 2-0, you win the wrestling match, right? So there's a bunch of those. Um, and so that's the stuff that I think a lot of coaches don't think about um, with that. And then the other thing is, I think coaches are so unconfident that they're going to, or, or, or non-confident, that they're going to say the wrong thing. Overcoach. If you have to, it's better that the, the kids hear you and they feel your love and they feel your support going into the state tournament or the national tournament, whatever it is, than they, then they, then they, and then if they don't hear you, even if you're overdoing it, mm -hmm. because that's all they need. They need to feel loved. They need to walk into assembly hall shoulder to shoulder with a man they love and feel supported by. Yeah. So that's my advice for the end of the year. Um, now, if we were at OPRF, the state tournament happened this weekend, two weeks later, what are you doing from mid-March through July? How many times a week are you having a structured practice with your high school team? At least three days. I mean, our club practice was for three days a week. We often did like drills or one-on-one -on -one stuff, you know, another day a week. We competed every weekend or we're at a clinic or something or a camp every weekend. So we're on the mat, you know, my thing is you're on the mat 
minimum three days a week. I mean, you're in the weight room the other time. I believe in running for toughness. I don't believe that, you know, if you train hard enough in the wrestling room, you don't need to run. That's what I'd hope you'd say. Perfect. So, yeah. you know, my, my thing is condition with wrestling. I've got 50 conditioning, wrestling conditioning drills that are harder than any 800 you're going to run. 100%. And way better for you physically, mentally, and every other way in terms of getting better at wrestling. Right. right. So, um, so three days a week wrestling, you're going to freestyle and grackle, you know, throughout the spring, you're obviously a Team Fargo coach. Uh, started. I was not, in the, especially in the last years. I think I only went to Fargo once or twice, but I was always on the dual team. But you're encouraging I, that I think type I did of activity. Tw- ten or twelve years on the, you know, with the dual teams. Okay. Eight or nine, I don't know, somewhere between eight and twelve years on the dual teams. But yes, I was very involved. We our our goal was to get all our kids qualified. I love the process of them having to raise money. We yeah. did a fundraiser for them. We always had a car wash where we would help the kids. But our deal was, you know, that last $100 we're going to put in. And then we usually gave them $100 for spending money or something. And, and, but to watch a kid, particularly an at-risk kid, have to go raise six or $700. And for you to foster that, that's a really meaningful thing. They have to present themselves well. They have to make important asks. They have to come up with a system for how they're going to do this. And, you know, I hated... I would be very anti, like, give that to your mom and to have her take it to church no. or, or have her take it to work. Okay, but I want you going to door to door. I want to make you a plan. So the process around Fargo, particularly if you're from Illinois, is really meaningful. And then that camp is, is a game changer for our kids. And then you, you, get, you get coached by Sean Bormet or Brian Medlin. I mean, come on, right? Unbelievable. So um, um, that was really meaningful for us. But all of our offseason was going toward that. Okay. And then if you didn't make Fargo, we always had a folk style camp week of Fargo. Oh, really? And so we would invite a bunch of other teams in and our guys that didn't make it, you know, back in those really, really good teams. I mean, our junior varsity beat the, our, our, our 2014 and maybe 2015 JV team beat the Kentucky State champs. You know what I mean? Like they went down and won like a 16 team dual tournament in Kentucky. So, um, when would you squeeze in the the backpacking trip, the camping trip? Was that something you did every year or once in a while? Because I've heard you took the guys like Mount Zion National Park. Yeah, we went all over Glacier. We went to the Sierra Nevadas. We went, yeah, Grand Canyon, um, Zion. Uh, once I got really sick, once I got older, we stopped doing that. We started doing like going to like we went to my parents' um, beach house once. Yeah where we did some outdoor stuff. We took them to the National Dunes. And we ran the, we had a race on the dunes, you know, that was, that was horrifyingly difficult. <laughs> um, kids all puking on the dunes. But, um, so we always did something uh, that was meaningful. We got to talk about what their lives look like in five years and 10 years and what it meant to, really meant to be a real man and how to treat a woman. And, you know, you're coming into your own as a man. What does it mean to be a captain of our team? And what is your legacy gonna be with our program? Are you carrying the torch? You know, all this stuff. So we'd have all these kind of lessons that we would do each night. That was e- that was either before or after Fargo, depending okay. on what we were doing. Okay. Usually after Fargo, and it was kind of the end of our summer. Yep. And then we'd take a week or two off, and we'd get back to it in the fall. And so back then you're doing three days a week, wrestling, a couple days running, lifting, depending on what your football guys are doing. Then you get in season. Are you practicing in the morning? Are you practicing at night? Let's say it's January. You doing two a days? How long are your practices? How long are you drilling? We did quite a few two days over Christmas break. Okay. If we had like a President's Day off, we might do two, and that might be a wrestle, a wrestle and a lift, or a wrestle and a lift and run. Yep. But it was uh, 
it, it actually became less and less as I got older. Mm. I got better at getting more out of each workout. And one of the things that I, in my study in Kale, like, you know, he's kind of private, but, you know, a rest day is really important. So we used to do, when I was a young coach, we did Bikram yoga every Sunday. And, no you know, I see. Way. Yeah, I love it was Bikram. awesome. Me too. I used to love it. But you so, take the guys and do that? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. And we always had a partnership with the one at Oak Park, but I used to take them down to early in the days. They used to take them down to 1344 North Lincoln. <laughs> oh I don't know if you've been there. I don't know if that one's still open, but so we used to go down there. You know, those were like the dedicated kids, but like I, we would bring like all the starters to these things. And, and what I come to realize is Bikram's not going to kill you, but it's not a day off. No. And my thing at the end became earn your day off. And I, I think much of my coaching tree is still doing stuff on, on, on Sundays. And I don't think it's a terrible thing, but I got, I got rest became more important, particularly when we had higher and higher end athletes. Yeah, and so we didn't have to grind these kids that have been grinding since they were five, mm-hmm. necessarily to make them tougher. The kid that comes out as a freshman, who's in his junior year and is still losing matches on mental toughness, maybe that guy you got to grind. Yeah. So, but those later teams that I was, you know, kind of running the room for, or when I was head coach for, a um, little more rest. But okay, yes, it, but it was arduous, oh. and our workouts were hard from the start to the finish. Coaches didn't sit down. Things were super intense. Every coach coached nonstop. There's none of this side conversation crap that you see. You know what I mean? That just sucks energy from a room. From like we were on nine from this time we started to the time we finished, um, and the kids were expected to work. So if you had a if you had brought them together to show a technique and you got a coach talking to a wrestler on the side, that would never happen. It was all, no, that would be okay. So we did okay. a lot of that. Like okay, okay take so and so. Like you're the heavyweight coach. You're going to be with them. Okay. When we break, you break. You go over this, this, and this, or you decide the heavyweight coach makes his own career. You know, you yeah. whatever they're doing. Um, or Jeremy Powell always had somebody on his side. That's fine. Okay. And, but we never brought it. Like I don't know. My last maybe five or six, seven years, we almost never brought it in and sat down. Got it. You just stood up or took a knee where you are, or you come in and walked. And, and instruction is short. It is poignant. Go stop, and then maybe we'll stop in the middle. Okay. We did a lot of sparring with those really good teams yeah. where you're moving from position to position because, you know, as I become more educated on the sport, yeah, man, how many setups you know doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, but how quickly you transition from your leg attack to your finish, um, from your finish to beating funk, for, you know what I mean? Yep. From your takedown to your ride, from your ride to your turn, you know, that stuff matters. Being able to flow from position to position, being inventive, learning how to beat a leg pass, learning how to beat a dive roll, can only come from, you know, real. So I'd say, hey, we're going to spar this position. Here are the three things we want the defensive guy to do or the offensive guy to do. Here's the look we want. Yep. So you get the point. Yep. But I think you got to read your team. That's something I read in Gable's book. Is And you hear about Gable is he's always, he was a master at knowing where his guys were psychologically. Mm-hmm. I look back at the times that I kicked myself about coaching and it was times where I kind of pulled away. And I, was, I did not have my finger on the pulse. And I look back at times where, you know, the best, you know, the best end of the seasons we ever had, and I was lockstep with the guys. You were in And there. the coaching staff, staff was. So, and that comes from leadership, right? And it comes from being present, and it's one of the most difficult things you could ever do. Right. So. And now you are 
doing an incredible job with Beat the Streets. You wouldn't say that because you're a humble guy, but the turnaround just in the culture of the Beat the Streets since I've been talking with guys is awesome. We'll close with this. You know, you're the executive director of Chicago Beat the Streets. You got a facility going up. You're turning things around. Give us a, give us a few minutes on kind of why you're doing this role and and what people can expect from Chicago Beat the Streets coming out of the pike. Well, let me first say this isn't on me. You're now involved. You know what I mean? We have a, we have we have built in a very short amount of time a coalition of difference makers. And I do not say that lightly ever because man is that thrown around a lot for people that don't really make a difference but we hired Kathy Yen and she's incredible you know and she's the engine that runs beat the streets and now we have a board of heavy hitters real difference makers major players in their industry who know what nonprofit success looks like knows what success in life look like so I am I'm happy to say I'm the I'm the architect of a lot of this, but I'm not the engine behind it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm proud to be able to say this that if I walked away from Beat the Streets right now, we we would still be thriving. But we've raised, you know, nearly two million dollars now from you know, I think the budget the year before I took over was forty thousand dollars and they had about forty kids, you know, that they touched, you know, really were that mm-hmm. they really had contact with. And we're gonna have well over two thousand. I mean we're, it's it's happening. It's you know, moving. It's, it's, that's our new hashtag is it's happening. The so. talk is done. Your action's going on. And what about this facility we're building? Well, so we're, we're, we're going to close on a building that was a former charter or and Cardinal Fitness. So it's 10,000 square feet, no pillars, already has locker rooms. I mean, it's perfect. Okay. It's in the perfect neighborhood. It's in the perfect, it is, you know, it's got a, two parking lots and it's right next to a giant parking lot. And I'm trying to remember who, but. Somebody knows a guy who owns that parking lot. So we're going to be able to use that at some point. So it'll be, I want it to be a central hub of wrestling. So obviously we wanted to serve the city of Chicago, but one of the things I want this facility to do is blur the lines between the city and the suburb. The city kids don't think they're good enough. The suburban kids think they're better than the city kids. And that's bullshit. And I mean that. Yeah. You know, you, you're not a lesser human because you're born on this side of Cicero Avenue or you're, or, or you're born on this side of Austin Boulevard. And, and these kids need to see it. So they're going to walk into a gym that's the best wrestling facility in Illinois. You know, I think this will rival Northwestern's facilities. I think it will rival the place down south that, uh, you know, they built for, for what's the... Anyways, one of those high schools down south that I'm drawing a blank on. Oh, you're thinking of uh, Mestamacher, Edwardsville. Yeah, Edwardsville. Yeah. Incredible facility. So it's not going to be as big, but this is, and I'll show you the renderings. Um, so we're going to close on the building. We've got incredible people. We've got a guy named Doug Baum of Baum Development Realty, who is is just incredible for us. Yep. And uh, so we're, we're, we're raising money around this building right now, but this is our central hub. And so we're casting a wide net. We have a bunch of neighborhood clubs. We're finding coaches yep. that we really want to invest in and we're helping them taking their team to the next level. Whether you're level one or level two club or neighborhood, you know, park district, you're at a CPS school, you're at a charter school, whatever you're doing, and we're supporting you fully or as an as an affiliate club, you'll filter into this, into this facility. But we'll also build our own culture and our own team around this, around the neighborhood there. Um, and then we're going to hold all these events, right? Can't wait. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Awesome. My goal is that it'll it'll serve the greater Chicagoland wrestling community in a really healthy, impactful way where excellence is always present. Um, 
but you know, we don't do the psycho dad thing. You know, yeah. we're not that stuff won't exist at this facility. This is about developing great humans through arduous work in this incredible sport. And so we have an enrichment classroom there that'll tutoring, mentoring, SAT prep, FAFSA stuff. You know, we have I don't know how many parents that will want to go to college and you know, kids who want to go on to college whose parents don't speak English. And so we, we have all these chances for workshop and coaches education stuff and, and it's gonna be pretty incredible. So my goal is to make this a real difference maker and, and, and what I love about this most, and I've talked a lot about scaling what we did at Oak Park. It's really hard to do that when you're hamstringed by your relationship with a school where it just isn't important yeah. or a park district that's got a lot of, that's resource strapped and nothing against these CPS schools or the park districts but when, when they can cancel a practice 20 minutes beforehand or a clinic, you know, the day before because they just, you know. They just want, yeah. Yeah, they got a lot going on, you know. <laughs> we control every variable. I love it. And we can have contact with these kids 350 days a year. And I can hire and mentor the coaches myself. I can bring back my own guys who've, who went through something like this. Greedy Coleman and I have already talked about it. He's probably the best natural coach of any kid I've ever coached. I will do whatever it takes when he leaves the Army and the Greco, the world-class athlete program out in Colorado Springs to get him to come back to Chicago and be the man at this facility. So, And if it won't be him, you know, I've talked to Tommy Gant about it. I've talked to all these guys. I've got all these connections from the national team. So we want some, some, we want some heavy hitters in there, some coaches who are going to be difference makers. And then we're going to build robust programming around it that is enriching in their lives in ways that's, that is far beyond wrestling. Mm-hmm. which is what we did with these kids on these senior trips and all these trips we took. And, and when you trust and you love somebody, they can look you in the eye and tell you, you know, ask you, how does it feel to not have a father in your life? You know, you can't just be a random white dude asking a black guy that question. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I had a dad you know, and I am a father. Yeah. But when they love you and they know it, being vulnerable with you is okay because you're vulnerable with them and they, that type of relationship that is truly transformative, the coach-player relationship, which is also unique about wrestling because it is so intimate. Mm-hmm. That can't happen unless you run everything. Mm-hmm. We control every variable at this facility. This is my baby. Kind of reminds me of when you took over that classroom with those kids back when you were doing Exactly. That, that is... Except for we want to do it with a couple thousand kids. Right, exactly. <laughs> and like you, you did the classroom, you kind of designed your own thing, you ran OPRF, you designed your own thing, and now you're doing it on a much broader scale I think it's a beautiful thing, and I'll tell you, just from being raised in the cornfields, my man Wes Cathcar and I were talking about this. We oh, always man, felt love that dude. we always felt a little shunned by the elite Chicago academies, the overtime kids, the Izzy style kids. We always kind of didn't have the confidence to go up against them. And in fact, if you were wrestling a a Harvey Twister or a Martinez guy back in the day, and you were from where I'm from, you were scared before you went up there. And I can only think it's ten times worse being in the city because we had parents we had booster clubs we had good coaches but we just didn't have the confidence and so i totally understand what you're saying when you talk about the kids who live in chicago proper versus the kids who live in naperville or barrington and get to go to poetas or get to go to izzy style and those are great programs and they get on instagram and they see that while they're practicing in the hallways in socks on amf mats right you know what i mean like gymnastics mats. right right and it's that's not so yeah. I call it leveling the wrestling mat. Right. You know, that's the leveling the playing field. But the disparity between 
the haves and have-nots, even in our blue-collar sport, that's supposed to be accessible to everybody. Incredible differences. It is so much worse than you think. Yeah. Even at Oak Park, you know, I thought I was, we thought we were gritty, and we went into Apple Valley's room and said, how come our room doesn't look like this? You know, and I would tell the kids, Glenbard West has this incredible room, and we're still going to kick their butt. Um, you know, we're in our, you know, the Oak Park room is like, the roof leaks and the mats are always torn up and it's nasty and hot and but it was our home and you know we loved it but yeah um so you thought you were the bottom feeders you thought you guys were gritty yeah and i yeah. got to the city and i it is so much worse than i thought and these coaches i mean these guys have like one stipend you know what i mean like oak park's got six stipends they have a girls team now yeah you know they have two giant wrestling rooms these guys are practicing in hallways and cafeterias in in I mean, on like two strips of mat with 30 kids. You know, like it's, it's, it's crazy, man. So to be, able to, to be able to help those coaches help themselves, right? To help them, you know, a lot of these coaches just needed someone to say, we're going to be there for you financially and in every other way. We're going to support you in the offseason. A lot of these guys are empowered now. Mm-hmm. They're getting more and more bought in. When you get the coaches bought in, they'll bring them to this facility. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's happening. The culture in the city of Chicago is building. Even the guys that are like, why is this outsider Powell who used to cheat at Oak Park coming? They're, they're still accepting our gifts and our support. You know yeah. what I mean? And they're slowly getting in. And we don't always agree on everything. And we get into it sometimes. And that's really healthy. I want them to challenge me. And I want to challenge them to step up. Yeah. And you know, so there's there's this like, I don't know, but it's happening, man. I mean, it, I the coaches it. are buying in, the athletes are buying in. You go to these what so-called beginner programs that aren't very good. If you would have been in our informal, had 115 kids um, last Sunday. Alexis Rivera run it. He's a, he's a city kid. His coach found him on the street, you know, like literally in the hallway, freshman year in high school. As a junior, he won the state championship. Wow. So. He's 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 one of our you know great coaches, but if you were to watch the level of wrestling in that room, you wouldn't believe that it was a beat the streets club. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. some of them are affiliate clubs, or they come in knowing how to wrestle a little bit. But our beat the streets kids can scrap now, and wait till we get them in this facility. Wait till we get them in six weeks of summer camp in this facility. You know that type of stuff. Can you imagine every day in the summer when they would be just doing kid stuff? You can get them in there. I, I mean, we we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna happen. I'm excited. I get, we got to find the right people. So this is one of the things I did was I threw a lot of, chased a lot of money, good money after bad, just because we want to grow the sport. But you, what I'm learning quickly is you have to grow the sport with the right people. Mm. If Ryan Warner comes to me and he says, I know what it takes. I'm willing to do what it takes. Will you support me to start a club in my neighborhood? Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. If I don't know you, I'll say, Good luck, kid. We're going to support you a little bit. We'll help you with your USA cards, and you can come to some of our stuff. If I see you bringing 15 kids to all our stuff, and you're finding ways to do things, and you're donating your, your stipend back to get uniforms for the kids, okay, we're going to take this dude to the Let's next talk. level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. You're now invited to, to have one of our mats. You're now invited to, you know what I mean? We're going to do this for you with shoes, and we're going to do this for you with coaches' education, and we're going to bring it to the facility. Love so. That. It's happening. I love it. It's Coach. Our, one of these days. I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I can go all I've day. Been, I've been known to talk. <laughs> I can um, go all day talking to you. One of these days, and it won't be long, every neighborhood in Chicago 
is going to be good wrestling is going to be accessible in every neighborhood in Chicago. And wrestling doesn't change anyone's life. People change their lives when they learn to love wrestling, right? Mm -hmm. They change their own lives. But if that opportunity doesn't exist, what are we doing for these kids, right? Right. So that's what we're doing. We're creating opportunities for kids to come build themselves. And uh, I hope your listeners will get on board. We need need coaches. We need volunteers. We need... um, We need cash. uh, We need money. We need cash, people. Uh, We need connections. We need sponsorship. um, But... And, we're, and I'm going to do uh, a whole thing on this um, in terms of how, kind of like what what I've been drawn to and how people can help. But um, folks, if you're in the Chicago area, if you know, and if you're committed, don't just say you want to have one call and then never hear from me again. I hate when people do that. You know, just reach out to me or, or Coach Powell, the Chicago Beat the Streets dot org. If not, you can just Google it and find it. Um, it. It's awesome to be a part of it. And knowing how passionate you are about wrestling, I know it's gonna it's gonna be awesome here in Chicago. Um, that's all I have for you, Coach Powell. It's been an honor to talk with you, sir. I do have to get one last plug in. Clayton Rush said you're one of the most impactful coaches he's ever had. And he, uh, uh, I talked to him yesterday. He said you made him, not made him, but encouraged him to cut from 126 to 112. And then he was wrestling Zach Sanders, who's a friend through the podcast. And Sanders was turning everyone on top of the junior duels. And you told Rush, dude, you got to stand up and parterre. And he stood up. He ended up beating Sanders. That was the first time Zach had lost at the junior duels in like three years. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, was, that, that, that at was, all. That was epic. That was epic. That was so epic. Uh, I think it was 119. But that we beat um, McDonough. Jimmy Chase beat McDonough. Mark Stenberg beat uh, St. John. <laughs> There's a bunch of other ones. Who else was on that team? Oh, that so so Sanders was Minnesota. Yeah, but no, maybe maybe Clayton Rush beat McDonough too. He beat. Um, it wasn't him, but Gail had messaged me. It was somebody else. So Gail and my mom. Clayton, these are my favorite humans too. My that's favorite my best humans friend. Of all, one of my best of, friends growing up in wrestling. Time. My brother's first match, and Clayton Rush was a stud when he was like in first grade. My brother got teched by Clayton Rush, and we had no idea who he was. We were wearing gym shorts and a t-shirt. My mom <laughs> didn't know anything. My mom becomes friends with Gail. Next thing you know, and we're like the same weight. We start staying at each other's houses. He w- went to a different high school, but you know, he, we were close. Clayton Rush was a stud. stud. And if he would have gone to a Division One school, he could have been an NCAA D1 champ. Yeah. Two-time uh, D3 All-American. Uh, champ. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he... Do you remember his match against McDonough in college? Yeah, at Carver. Of he had him. Yeah. He could have beat... The, he could have won yeah. that match. Anyways, the Rush family, I absolutely adore. Uh, and Clayton Rush is one of my all-time favorites. I think he was on five different teams that I coached. He's the man. Five, he was, he was, when he was in eighth grade, he was like our 97-pounder or something. This is why I say you like team. the underdogs. You pick up kids, single-A kids, pick up West Cathcart, some of these obscure farm awesome. towns, and you're like, listen, come try Greco. And he's like, I don't do Greco. You're like, listen, no one does Greco. Come and help. Come out here. So you like, you like the underdog kids who... Listen, our freestyle junior duel team was so good that they didn't need anyone from single A schools. They were that good. Well, and and half the time they they would tell their kids don't wrestle Greco. Right. So we had to go find Clayton. That's Rush. what I'm saying. Like you were, you just find these people in these places. And I, um, I picked up Cartice Lloyd off the street. I went to his house, and his mom said, "I think he's down the block," and he was on the street corner. And I'm like, Cartice, go pack your bag. And he ended up winning the match to get us in the national finals. My my second year ever with the duels that kid was so good that he, kid was dude he got pushed out once and he was on his tippy toes and rather than step out of bounds he did a backflip 
He was awesome. He was a ton of fun. I hope he's doing well in life. Uh, I don't know. I haven't followed him. Just straight wrestling-wise, that kid. He was the man. I mean, I'll never forget in eighth grade, or I can't be if he was like a two, three, five-time champ, whatever. Killed everybody. His freshman year was at Mount Carmel, and we used to host this tournament, the Genesee Bi-State. Mount Carmel came to it, and he wrestled. I remember that. Yeah. You're, whoever Geneseo Tim coach Kinky. didn't let me in the uh, in the tournament. I tried to get Oak Park's team in the tournament, and he, re- he left me a message said, "Thank you for calling. We would it's, it'd be an honor to have Fenwick. This is when we weren't very good, and Fenwick was good. It'd be an honor to have Fenwick. That's the Oak Park team they knew in our tournament, but we have to turn you down." Wow. And so I said, "But anyways, I tried to get in the tournament." But Tim Kinky, I wrestled in college. So it's funny you say that because your sophomore year at high school, Tim Kinky got third in your bracket, and Tim Kinky's dad, Larry Kinky, is like a like a legendary figure where we're from, kind of a oh, program builder. Um, yeah. But yeah, he um, he went to Rock Island and um, started a program that I mean, Reese Taylor was a friend of mine. He was a state yeah. champ, stud, that, stud. So, um, but yeah, I was just looking at your high school brackets. Your sophomore year, it was like um, Joe Williams, Tim Kinky. Joe B. Um, Joe B. put me out of the tournament. I think. I know. Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Terror. I choked. There's that was a, some tough weights on me. I mean, yeah, Joe. That back. was. I should have won. I tried a headlock in the quarterfinals, and the guy rolled me through and held me on my back for four, and it was the stupidest thing I've ever. I mean, I hadn't tried a headlock all year. It was stupid. You think was, you would have won choked. your junior year? Probably not, because I'm a terrible competitor. I think I definitely was the best guy at the weight. You do. Yeah. I mean, Jevin Herman was good. Really good. I mean, I think he was a one or two time D1 All American. Carl Rossler, who was third in the NCAAs, was at that weight. But I don't think I ever, I think I was like eight no against Carl Rossler lifetime. Uh, so, so and Ryan Root, who got second, is the guy I beat in the finals the next year. Right. right. So, I don't know. No, yeah. in that state of mind, I probably would have been third or fourth. But you were a top guy. Oh, easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah easily. Wow. I mean, I definitely could have been in the finals. Herman was good, you know. You think you could beat a guy, but I was not a great competitor. I mean, even my senior year, I was just so much better than everybody else. I wrestled terrible in the finals. And let's not forget people, because I'm an old two-way guy, and when I was in it, it was two two divisions only. We were in two-way, 24-man brackets, no seating, no true wrestlebacks. It was a freaking just a scrap fest down there. I'll never forget yeah. my sophomore year. It was like Jimmy Kennedy, Mario Morgan. Nick Fanthorpe all in the same quarter of some sort. Oh, it's just yeah. freaking nuts. I remember that bracket. You know, I mean, like, so you're you're talking about the good old days, and um, I'm going to be down there this week. And, Coach, we could talk wrestling all day. And Clayton Rush is the good old days for me. He's Gal Rush is those, those not obviously not the Oak Park days, but those dual teams were our favorite. And, man, we had some absolute hammers. It's almost like you teams. had two different teams for a long time. You had the OPRF, then you had the Greco guys. I mean, because you impacted a lot of kids who weren't on OPRF just through the Greco Well, and teams. a lot of the, you know, that was Medlin and I's connection. Right. I mean, Brian's the best friend. Uh, you know, uh, Chris McGrath and I are very close. Steve Holland was an incredible, has been a great friend. Um, but I don't know that I've ever talked for longer periods of time with any other human about wrestling other than Brian Medlin. And we criticized each other and we built each other and it was, and a lot of it was done through that dual team. Did they ever get heated? Of course. Of course. I mean, not tons, you <laughs> not know, tons, but, but there's times he would tell, especially when we coached a dual team together, he'd be, and he would, it was always him telling me to shut up and stop being over the top about something. But, um, and I always needed it, but, you know, a lot of it was, uh, we were just, we held, we, you know, we really were ambitious together. Yeah. And we felt like we were the only guys in the game doing what we were doing. Whether we were or we weren't, it was 
it was healthy for us to talk like that. Yeah. And uh, to kind of like, you know, it was kind of our programs and the dual teams against the world. And, you know, so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Coach Powell, it's been an honor, sir. I look forward to Likewise. many more years of friendship and helping with the Beat the Streets. And I just want to thank you for the time. Thank you. Thanks for your help with Beat the Streets. Thanks for doing what you're doing for wrestling. This is very meaningful. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.